home prices in black neighborhoods are priced lower. What's going on, man? What's, what's going on with that 12%, bruh? Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, revolutionaries? Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show. A show for men and the people who love them. Where we discuss how men can find and embrace the revolution within themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpro. I can start this diatribe today saying exactly two weeks ago we went to the polls and we spoke, we spoke up. As my boy said, we didn't stand back and stand by, we stood up and we stood out. out. You know what I'm saying? I think that's a t-shirt, Dr. Parrott. You know what I'm saying? We're going we gonna to get that. Oh, I just spoiled it for a minute. But I could talk about all of that and me and my guest today, my good friend, Dr. Andre Perry, will get into a, a host of topics about what has gone on over the last two weeks, what has gone on in the last four years, what has gone on for the last 400 years. But I must start today with giving a shout out to the good men of Omega Psi Phi fraternity. 109, 109, 109 years of greatness. Shout out to all of the good bros. Giving a shout out to my line brother, seven plus one, Antoine Hickman. My man doing his thing down in Miami. Shout out to him, Frank Walton, the mortician. The mortician, Stanley Ernest, William Seiko Varner, Andre Vickers, right? Shout out to, uh, shout out to our brother who went to a mega chapter, John Jessup, and oof, oof, my good brother Nathan Woodard. Shout out to my good brothers, love the brothers of Pi Gamma, Lambda Omega, Beta Delta Delta, all the good brothers who have an impact, an impact on who I am as a man, who I am as a person. Thank you for all the love, the support. Friendship is essential to the soul, dear brothers. One hundred and nine. <laughs> 109, 109 years of Omega Psi Phi fraternity. But as I think of this fraternity of black men, right, from all across the country, chapters actually globally all across the world, I think about what happened last week, Dr. Perry. I think about this, and before, before I even say his name even one more time, let me give a shout out to this brother, Brookings Institute fellow, Dr. Andre Perry fellow New Orleanian alum because we know we're not there no more, bruh. You know, we, we, I'm always there. You know what I'm saying? Look, <laughs> we're we not there. We are uh, alum of New, or New, New Orleans, New Orleans, as we say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I miss it, bruh. I, I, I miss New Orleans so, so much, man. Especially yeah. now, November, the best time of year, man. What do you miss? What do you miss, Dr. Perry, about New Orleans when you're not there? Oh, there's no, without question, I'm, I miss the, the family um, and community aspects of New Orleans. I mean, it is truly a place where you feel like you're part of a community. I mean, in so many other places I live, um, you are a resident and you may have neighbors, but you don't feel a connection um, in a um, metaphysical sense. But in New Orleans, you feel um like you were part of a second line that that Louis Armstrong led. I mean, yes, it, it, you are yes. part of the tribe. So I, I know I always say that um, I will always be connected to New Orleans mm -hmm. and and it, it was so influential on my development and so many things I'm doing today. I actually did in New Orleans. I yeah. just have a different stage and um, different opportunities, but um, I learned it in New Orleans. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? You know, you think about the ponds, right, dear, dear brother, you know, how you swim and you fish in certain ponds. You have been able to say, you know what, what I learned from New Orleans and swimming in those New Orleans waters. <laughs> you've, been able, you've been able to take up to Brookings and D.C. nationally and globally with your work, dear brother. But before I get to our signature question, I really I want to tease. I want to talk about this for a second. You know, 12 percent of our brothers voted for Donald Trump last week, two weeks ago, right? And I said, you know, I have not been able to unpack that with anyone. And I said, you know what, the first person I'm gonna do that is with you, my dear friend. What's going on, man? What's, what's going on with that 12%, bruh? You know? That well, but I'm actually surprised it's not higher for this reason. Um, black people as a community, we're generally socially conservative. Mm -hmm. um, yes. We go to church more, our views on things like immigration and finances, family, they're very conservative in nature. 
And so, and then on top of that, um, Bell Hooks, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I remember her saying in several of her wonderful books, how black men have always striven to be the, the stereotype of a white man mm -hmm. or the, the ideal of what they see for themselves. And, and, you know, so you have a segment of the population who will strive to be a Trump. And, um, but I'm actually surprised not more uh, black people vote for the GOP just because we're socially conservative. So it tells you how God awfully racist uh, the Republican Party is. It, it, you mean, you look at this church going black folk, black people, you would think they would fall in line with most evangelicals and others, but the racism in the church, the racism in the party, um, and their willingness to shelter um, white nationalists. Mm. Um, but black people don't have time. We, so we, we, we vote for a Democratic Party. Um, oftentimes, oftentimes, um, with the, in a way that's misaligned with our values, but um, I'm a progressive um, in nature um, and, and not bound by party, but certainly I, there's room for me in a Democratic Party. I can't say that in a Republican Party. So, um, yeah, I'm just not surprised. I am not surprised. And then, but I will say this about 50 Cent, uh, Little Wayne, New Orleans, Little Wayne, <laughs> Louisiana, man, you know, Louisiana, just, exactly. To a certain extent, Ice Cube, you know, there, there has always been a lane to 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 quote Fifty for rap to get rich or die trying. Mm. Mm. And, and we're <laughs> Tell dying that story, trying. bro. Tell that exactly. Die trying. Get <laughs> die rich or try. die trying. And, and, you know, you had Jay-Z say what's better than one billionaire two or something like that. Yeah. You know, this idea that the winner takes all and the, the, pe the person with the most toys wins is this ridiculous. It's, it's, it's what was the driving factor of, of slavery, of Jim Crow racism, of, historic discrimination to suppress and throttle black economic growth to the benefit of white people. So for us to adopt these values, it, it makes no sense, but hey, but there there's clearly people who embrace those values. Yeah, it seems like, the, you know, it becomes antithetical to who we are, but capitalism and individualism walk hand in hand. They are, they are married and we see this. We, the conversations that I've had with people over the last couple of weeks is that this image of, of, of masculinity, this image of being able to say whatever I want to be able to do without any repercussions is alluring. It's intoxicating, right? And even though, even, even though the, the stokes of white nationalism and racism and prejudice and discrimination and bigotry and misogyny, misogyny play out on a daily basis, right? These images of I can I, I can ascend to this, I can be a part of this. And that the actually I had a conversation the other day is that the Democratic Party, Joe Biden in these, they're soft. This, 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 this notion of Democrats are soft, they're bleeding heart liberals, that they don't have this tuck this toughness that they are victims, Dre, that we, you know, we, I am a victim. And I'm like, test me, bro. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to show you my victimization in a second, right? <laughs> you know? Well, but even this idea that there's something wrong with you if you're empathic, if you can sympathize with someone else is so pathological. And um, we need to get rid of that because what is ugly and I don't have any room for it is lying. And there's a, a, a great dissonance that you have to take on when you uh, um, uh, really strive to be like a Donald Trump, you really have to believe that it's all on you. Yeah. And, and the people that helped get you anywhere were just insignificant um, figures in your quote unquote rise. And, and that your behaviors 
um, to get wherever you got, it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Step on people, roll over people, lie to people. As long as you're in the the alpha male position, then you are good. You are and, good. you know, that just defies everything that that our existence in the Americas for sure. And when you t- think about the, the, the most important, I should say, I mean, not we're all important, but when you think about the Malcolm X's, the, the Kings, the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Ella Bakers, all these people, they were about community. They were about elevating others. And for us to dis- discard or disregard um, that legacy is is for for this this perceived greatness, and it's clear that what what came out of this is Trump showed that he didn't win because of his effort, his hard work, his you know pulling himself up. You know the the game, the rules of the game are tilted for some, and. And it denies others the right to rise. And so for me, he exposed how um, how this issue of meritocracy and white greatness, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a falsehood. And We're in this together and there's good people. They're um, doing good work. But you can't tell me that the rules of the game have not been tilted to limit black people's rise in the Americas. Yes, yes, no, you're exactly right. And I appreciate that perspective, Dre. Dear brother, we asked this question to every one of our guests and I'm anxious, I am super anxious to ask you this question. Dr. Andre Perry, Brookings fellow, New Orleans alum, what's your revolution? Oh, this is easy for me, uh, and I say it all the time. There's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. Mm. That there's this idea, this white supremacist myth, that the conditions of of black neighborhoods and cities are a direct result of the people in them, and we ignored, sidestep, abdicate our responsibility for addressing the policy issues that negatively impact our neighborhoods. And so I unapologetically feel that there's nothing wrong with us. I really do. You know, that we are enough. However, with that said, we we must change these policies in ways that will um, reveal who we actually are. Yes. You know, and because in so many ways, oppression has been so stifling. You you can't see who we are because we're so entrenched um, in this battle with racism. And so for me, you remove that drag of racism in our markets, in our economy, in our um, political apparatus, then you're gonna see new communities, new inventors, new ways of being. Um, But we are exhausted because we're constantly fighting a narrative that is built to keep us subservient. And so for me, it's to always remind ourselves, it's those policies, it's those structures that are at fault, not us. Because if we internalize it's us, we end up saying stupid um, crap like 50 Cent. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we, we end up talking like Lil Wayne when we forget our true greatness. And start, and and that's what they're essentially doing: blaming black people for the conditions that we are in, and it's just irresponsible to say the least. It's a, it, it's ignorant, and it it shows a lack of compassion. Uh, you know, I so for me, it, it's also tied to masculinity. Mm. In in this regard. It is, it is good from a masculine frame to blame others. You see, Trump never accepts responsibility. Never. He never. never accepts responsibility, even if it means bringing down everyone with him. And so to me, that's the true ma- the, the masculine frame that we need to get rid of 
but you have a small percentage of us that are willing to uphold it. But um, I, I tell them every day, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve, Man. understand it, internalize it. You know, and it, it, it is interesting because everyone, I need you to go out and get, get this, this brother's newest, newest book, Know Your Price right? Know your price. And in the forerunner of the book, he says his most eloquent quote that he just said, right? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. And that's his revolution. And so in that, Dre, what you've just talked about is those, those policies, right? Those institutional and systemic policies that hamper our ability to Excel, and so you know some of those bootstrappers who who may be watching, they'd be like, "What are you talking about? Racism doesn't exist, number one, or if if it does, it is not hampering the way that we exist and live in this world." We know this is true, but you have written in your book, "Know Your Price," that the impact of racism and institutional racism has devalued where we live. Right? We know the historical ramifications of redlining. But we know the greatest transfer of wealth has been happening across look in our country for the last 50 years because of redlining. What made you say that I need to I need to actually go and chronicle what's going on in some of the major cities in our country to show that this devaluation of where we live is impacting how we actually actually develop and grow and prosper in this country? You know, Charles, both of you and I have done work in schools and, and we've heard over time and time again, people say, if we could only fix the schools, everything will be all right. Mm. And it's, it suggests that these kids need to be trained um, because their families aren't doing it, whatever's not doing it. And as a former school leader in New Orleans, I used to take umbrage to that because I could see how housing, transportation, infrastructure, um, other um, um, sectors that are impacted by policy negatively impacted education. So when I got to Brooklyn, I said, hey, I want to look at uh, the development of the community because kids don't live in schools. They live in communities. They live in communities. And so I wanted to look at all the community. And the first thing you need to start with is housing because housing is so connected to all to education policy to um, it, if it, it drives the finances of municipalities it determines where you vote it's 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 such an influential um, sector so I went about this looking at home oh, and one more thing and for the book I wanted to go to the places where my father lived mm, that's right it and is it is it is part by it is part autobiography. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so. Exactly. Of Dr. Andre Perry. Yeah. So I had, um, I, you know, I didn't want to just write a policy book that you put a bunch of numbers in and nobody reads. Yes. I, and, and by the way, research is personal. Don't let anybody ever tell you that research is not personal. We have our fingerprints on everything we do. So, but, but I went ahead. Um, I went to Detroit. I went to, uh, um, I'm from Pittsburgh. My father's from Detroit. I went to those places. And I looked, started looking at home prices. And what we found um, is what people would suspect. Home prices in Black neighborhoods are priced lower. Now, um, in fact, homes where the Black population is about is less than a percent, they're on average priced about $340,000, where, where Black people are 50% or are higher, it's about half as much. Wow. But people will say that's because of education, that's because of crime and, and other individual behavior type um, of variables. So those are things you can control for in a study. So what we did was actually control for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics, the size of the home. So, so we could get an apples to apples comparison of a home in a black neighborhood um, with uh, the same uh, same levels crime walkability uh, education as a white neighborhood, and what we found that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by forty eight thousand dollars. Now that forty eight thousand dollars across the country accumulates to about one hundred and fifty six billion in lost equity. 
That $156 billion in lost equity would have financed more than $4 million businesses based on the average amount Blacks use to start up their firms. It would have financed more than 8 million college degrees, four-year diplomas from a public institution. It would have covered all of Hurricane Katrina damage. It's more than double the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. And the reason why I say that is because my father, um, he was a heroin addict. Mm. He um, eventually was in and out of prison. He was murdered in prison. Um, he died at the hands of another inmate. Um, but I say this all the time. When I went to those places where he lived, the, the housing, the value, the housing values were still very low where he lived. So not only did he die at the hands of another inmate, he the housing devaluation was an accomplice because if he lived in a neighborhood where it was properly valued, he would have had better educational service his drug use would not have been criminalized. He would have maybe started a business, all these different things, just from housing alone, just from housing alone. Now, but we are devalued in um, business. I have research for that. We are devalued in education, devalued in leadership, devalued in infrastructure, but just in housing alone, robbing resources needed for us to climb any social or economic ladder. So for me, that's why I say there's nothing wrong with Black people that ending racism can't solve. We need to be able to connect the dots from redlining racial housing covenants to um, unequal funding in education to all sorts of things that, that and, and, and stop saying, oh, we just need to stop complaining. You know, no, no, um, people don't know this, but schools predominated by black people or, or people of color um, um, get $23 billion less than their white counterparts, majority, 23 billion. There's not a single white family who has said, I'll switch shoes with the person <laughs> in those schools. No one would say, oh, you just need to get over it. I'll just go over that side and, and get those less resources. Nobody. But we say all the time, um, society all the time, hey, money doesn't matter, just work hard. And we hear it in our communities, you got to work twice as hard. And, you know, that's just not, I mean, that might be, you know, what we have to do, but we shouldn't be superhuman in order just to get what we need, the basics. So, So, you know, that's a long-winded answer. No, no. look, there were so many, look, revolutionaries, if you heard, there were so many things, so many nuggets that you need to pull out of this. So make sure that you're listening closely. But Dre, like, okay, so we hear all this. We read the book where, you know, we get we get ingratiated and enamored with young Dre, you know, moving through moving through the spaces of, you know, of his father, understanding how policy has impacted people of color. The devaluing. I mean, you just said one hundred and twenty-eight billion dollars, and we one hundred fifty-six, one hundred fifty-six, one hundred fifty-six billion. We can't even get what we can't even give a, a, a two billion or five billion dollar stimulus for people doing COVID, right? And you're thinking, right? You're thinking one hundred and fifty-six billion. So I, I, I'm sitting. I'm this legislature now, right? I'm on a city council, right? Or I'm a, a state house of representatives, or I'm a, a newly elected con, uh, congressional rep, or um, I'm Pastor Warnock in jo- in Georgia when he wins this right Senate race. I'm taking. What do I do with what you just told me? Oh, what do, I do with that information. Well, what the information provides is that we need to restore the value that's been extracted by racism. And you do that several ways. You can't wave a magic policy wand and say, let's raise housing prices because you would essentially block out low income people from ever buying them. And so what you would eventually have to do is add value by providing direct capital to individuals in those areas. Now, let's go back to the 30s. When we were in the depression, how did we get out of the depression? We cut checks for poor people, Mm. just not black people. So we gave um, low interest housing loans to um, essentially people to move to the suburbs. We created highways. We gave people down payment assistance for their homes, GI bills, things like that. Now, these are uh, direct subsidies to people, Um, tax credits, for instance. 
Now we, we can do the same thing. So in many places, home prices are so low in many places. So if you're in a Detroit, you can buy properties um, for 30,000 you know, cash if you have the cash. Um, and there are many properties banks won't back, back with a mortgage because they're just too, too, too low. low price. Right. And so those are the kind of places we should be giving low interest housing loans, new mortgage products to low income people um, to buy those homes because they're living there. It's not like they're not, you know, not living. They're already living there. We need to find mechanisms to enable them to become homeowners. In addition to that, I'm, we need long-term ways to build wealth. I'm a big supporter of baby bonds because, um, and this is the idea where you give a child when they're born a savings account that accrues wealth over time. And when you graduate from high school or whatever, turn 18, you get a pot of money, say $60,000. Now that you can apply that sixty thousand dollars to college, right. to start a business, to buy a car, who cares to to do whatever. But we need new vehicles for people to to accrue wealth, because um, that's what housing did. And housing can't necessarily do it in the same way it did in the past. Uh, but um, there are other ways. Um, we also need to invest in businesses. Yes. So. Um, so most people start their business using the equity in their home. So if you don't have equity you in don't your have home, equity. right. You're renting, you know, you're renting. Less, that's right. We're, I mean, black people represent about 13% of the population, but only 2.2% of the nation's employer businesses. So um, we got to figure out ways to invest in black business owners, founders, and we need to in, uh, have them, um, situate themselves in black communities. So um, creating, instead of incentivizing Amazon to come to town, we need to incentivize black businesses right, right, to exactly. come to town. Right. So these are the things that we're already doing. We just don't do it for black people. Mm. And mm. so for me, it's these are not um, revolutions in the sense of, just do what you've always done. <laughs> it shouldn't have to be a revolution is what you're saying, Dre. It so we need rev we need a revolution. But when it comes to building wealth, it's like just do what you've done for <laughs> white people historically for everyone and things will be much better. Right. And, you know, but it shouldn't take Killer Mike, you know, buying property in Georgia or Rick Ross buying property. Rick, excuse me. Killer Mike creating his own bank. bank his own bank and Rick Ross buying acres and acres of land in Georgia to, to create spaces for us to build wealth. That's why Dre, I love, you know, shout out to my people at Camelback. I'm always, always trying yeah. to find a way, find a way to bring Camelback ventures into the conversation here on the what's your evolution show, but we've got to be able to invest back into people, businesses that are, are, are functional and started by women and people of color. You know, and, and that's what we do at Camelback, but we're just one organization. Right. And and what we've seen, Dre, with, you know, our brother, George Floyd, that many institutions have said we want to give back to people of color. But how long is that going to last? We yeah. want to make sure that we are creating long term policy change. Often we talk about I want to take down monuments. I want to take down monuments. But usually what happens when you take down monuments, these Republican control houses, state houses are creating policies that are still stymieing what's going on in our communities. And we've got to be able to push back. So we look shout out to everybody who is taking a seat, right, taking a seat at the table. <laughs> Yeah, I've been I've been a little radicalized the last couple of months, Dre. <laughs> it should be. I mean, this is an environment that if you're if you haven't been transformed, mm. um, then something's wrong with you. But on this uh, um, point of of you see all these corporations now giving out um, billions in in dollars to black businesses. But my question is, we need to move away from charity and move towards investment. Mm. You know when. When you when you open up these funds and anyone can apply, it, it lacks nuance. It lacks um, sort of a, an, a, an investment strategy. We need to be investing in particular kinds of firms in particular areas of the country. Um, 
Um, and we need to increase the number of employer firms, meaning the firms that hire at least um, one other person. Because what's happening is many of the, the businesses we have simply can't take advantage of government and private contracts. You know, they, they can't be suppliers um, for these entities. And more, more importantly, we need um, um, Black businesses to be employer businesses because Black people are more likely to hire Black people. Mm. So, yeah. Um, livable so, wage, livable wage jobs created by 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 people of color to create livable look livable communities, and that's what we uh, want. Absolutely, yeah. So, th- so it's not to say I'm I'm against these Fortune 100 companies giving out money, but let's let's not spread it thin or thin like peanut butter across the nation. Let's be targeted. Let's say here are firms and occupations and industries that we really need to see take off. And here are some neighborhood serving um, neighborhood serving uh, uh, companies, firms, businesses that we also need to invest in. It's not only investing in tech or high uh, growth industries, but it's also making sure that the main streets, the commercial corridors that are adjacent to significant black neighborhoods are thriving. Yeah, because as those corridors go, the neighborhoods go, and let's make sure we have corollary housing policy. Because if we elevate business and not housing, you're essentially going to push people out. Right. So, it, so it, we do need a comprehensive approach. It is a you're right. It, it is a systems level approach. Yep. Revolutionaries, make sure you go out and get this brother's book. Know your price, Dr. Andre Perry, Brookings Institute Fellow, New Orleans of Love. Bro, I don't know if you remember, you know, I was, I was thinking, when did I meet Dr. Andre Perry? And I don't remember. There was a an art gallery at the corner of uh, Magazine Street, you know, uh, at the Bend, you know, uh, back maybe 2008, 2009, um, when you had the locks. <laughs> 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 you, you, you had the locks back in the day. And that's how um, my good friend Janice introduced us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. It was an art, art, art gallery. We were, there was an opening that night um, and we introduced, she was like, this brother's doing great things in education. And we had been able to form an amazing bond over the last 10 years. You know, I have been a, a fan, a tremendous fan of your work, brother. But look, I want to pull back for a second because this show is about us you know, as, as men of color. And we always ask this question. I get in, I get into the personal. I don't, I don't drop the lead because this brother is a journalist as well. So you don't, you don't bury the lead. So I needed to talk about know your price for a second. Everybody knows Dr. Andre Perry. I, I want my revolutionaries to know who is Dre? Dre from Wilkinsburg, right? Pennsylvania. Oh man. Who is I'm- that? Right. Tell the people about him. Well, to be honest with you, um, I'm a man with a lot of insecurities. Um, I um, struggle at times accepting the fact that I have gifts and talents. And um, and when I was informally adopted by an older woman in the hood who took in kids and she believed in family. Um, she um, she reared about 12 to 15 kids from um Various walks of life. Some would stay like a few days. Some would stay a few months. I stayed till I graduated from high school. And the thing about her, she was, you know, she was poor. Um, she's pulled together social security checks and and things. And and when whenever you are poor, it's not until you go to college or some other place do you realize, oh snap, I'm poor. And you know, from there, it was like I started trying to prove I'm worthy and prove this and that. And that, to me, um, got a little bit pathological mm. in a sense of, mm. you, you know, I shouldn't have to prove to anybody who I am that I'm smart, I'm handsome, I'm capable, all that. <laughs> that it is what it is. But the the reality is that over the last, I would say, 10 years, I've really become very sure of myself. Mm-hmm. Very sure of myself. I mean, uh, to the point where 
I, I don't have sort of fears about anything I write or anything I do. And, and I know the consequences um, and the potential consequences because I've taken great risk um, over my career, diving in places where I'm like, ah, should I do this or should I not? And, and now when, when, I, when I have the confidence you know, I'm able to navigate spaces without worrying about what people are saying or about or, or how people will feel. And um, and, it, and the, the struggle with that is when you first start doing it, oh, people aren't going to accept you. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, it makes them uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. This brother it, wait, coming wait. in here like he knows something. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Who is he? Who is this dude? Exactly. You know, and I'm, you know, and and I would say, and it started like shortly after I got to New Orleans, you know, I started really walking in the shoes I wanted to walk in. Yeah. I mean, the way I dressed, the way I spoke, who I hung out with, um, the moves that I made, you know, I wasn't now doing it for anyone else, but me and my family. Yeah. And, um, and with a purpose, you know, it's always about community, it's all about family, but I'm not doing it because so-and-so told me to. Mm. I'm not doing it because it's the end thing. I'm doing it because I've read, I've, I've went into deep thought, like everything I do, I take a period and I go, okay, what am I doing here? Mm. Where am I going? Right. I do that with, if I start a, like with every column I wrote, right, every blog, every report, I go, what is the point? Where am I going? What am I saying? What's the statement I want to make? And then after that um, um, meditation almost, if you will, then I can, you know, really feel confident because i I've discussed it with myself, sometimes others. I also believe in having an informal advisory board. Yes, right. You know, you sometimes you got to bounce ideas off of other people um, just to get as a sounding board. So because we can all be immersed, too immersed in our own head. We need different perspectives. Yeah, I got to get it out. Not that we we take we're taking them and just running with them, but to 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 measure our own thoughts. And so I would say now. I'm a very confident person, not, not to the point where I, you know, don't remember what it means to be um, insecure um, because uh, like uh, poor, I think f- poor folks always have a little bit of insecurity. Mm, yeah. In their own. <laughs> yeah. 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 When you and get so out, of, when you get out a little bit, but Dre, let me ask you this question, bro, because my, my revolution is going to say, Hey, how do you get there, right? How do you? I, I've got these insecurities, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm looking. If I could see back and wa- watch insecure Dre, and I see Dre now, right? I see him now. How did he get here? Because I know Dre, right? And the thing that I admire about Dre is that Dre walks into any room and like, <laughs> I'm Dre, right? And it's not, it's, it's not an arrogance. It is, it is assuredness that comes along. But you had to. What are the steps that you had to take to get there? To get oh, to this place man. of being confident, right? To lose the veil of I'm poor, right? Maybe I got a little bit of imposter syndrome. Maybe I got a lot of imposter yeah. syndrome. You know what I'm saying? Right? How do you get there? One, um, I will say this. This might be a little off, but I lost some great loves in my life. Mm. <laughs> lost some great loves. And when you lose some great loves, you learn. I mean, if you're humble, yeah, if you're humble and I've lost loves because of insecurities, because of, you know, me perpetrating and demanding <laughs> things and, and being, and trying to be 50 cent, you know? <laughs> <laughs> trying to be 50 cent will get you in trouble every time, every time, every time <laughs> performance, <laughs> that performance exactly. of toxic masculinity. That's- Exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've lost great love. And it comes to a point where you say, you know what? I don't want to lose things that are important. Not that I'm perfect. I will never say I'm perfect. But I've 
I've also felt the pain of loss and I was willing to do the work to um, not feel that pain again. Mm. I remember, in, I mean, one of the things I did specifically is I learned how to listen, really learn how to listen. Mm-hmm. Empathy. Like I used to go to meetings um, and I would have thoughts in my head as the people are talking, you know, at, while somebody's talking so I could drop some kind of truth bomb and, you know, <laughs> later on. And so I remember like maybe in, it was out of 2014. No, no, two, well, 2006, 2006. I started going to meetings and I told myself, don't say a word for 20 minutes at least. Like, don't just listen, get a sense of the the room, temp, take the temperature of the room, know who's there, try to learn the names. And then I just developed a listening skill that then I applied to journalism because, you know, then I just started listening so intently. I started writing down what people would say, but the real developmental advancement in my life was listening. Yeah. And um, again, I'm not perfect at that. Um, And then I also learned how to control my temper um, because I think um, in, in a bar, in a conversation, because you know, we, we like to debate, we like to get in it, like, like to get in, immerse, <laughs> immerse me in this, right? I'm, I'm ready, I'm, You're ready. I'm, I'm, I'm ready, right? I got my, I got my armor on, I'm ready, right? <laughs> but sometimes we can get a little too defensive, a mm. little too aggressive, um. And, and, and this is where I've also, instead of attacking people, now I attack ideas. Mm. Oh, there it is. There's my nugget, people. There, <laughs> there it is, revolutionary. Say it again for me, Dre. Instead of attacking people, I attack ideas. Mm. And, and when you can remove the person from a debate, an argument, and just go after the idea, woo, life becomes easier. Life it becomes, becomes so much easier. Mm. Mm. Because then you can lean back. You don't even have to yell. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Tell me more about this aspect. But when you, when, but in, but sometimes, and I still slip into this, sometimes I want to just embarrass someone. Mm. I want to knock somebody out mentally or physically. And there's, that just ends up being a hot mess. Yeah. Exactly. And I've, been the, and I've been in too many situations where it's been a hot mess. And so to risk, like, so it's from a self-interested perspective, I said, you know, I need to improve my reputation. I need to improve my mindset. I need to improve the, the way I interact with people. But, and this is again, another revolution. It wasn't until, until I started really seeing how policy and narrative and all impacted my life, you know, you know, yes, it's like you, when you ask yourself, why am I acting this way? And you really think about the social expectations, the policy, like we grew up um, and still, I write this in my book um, talking about the Moynihan report, the Moynihan report, while it provided some a robust structural analysis of racism in America. It it blamed black women for the for poverty in black communities. It yeah, essentially said uh, black uh, uh, black women headed households were unstable. Therefore, that what makes them poor. Ignoring all the policies that you know, Moynihan clearly did not have a black woman on his team. <laughs> Like he clearly did not. Have. And, but for me, when I got to college and I read that I became angry because the woman who raised me was a black woman was a black woman. Mm. So I was responding angrily. And I said, instead of looking at, okay, that report influenced narrative, which influenced perceptions of me, I need to um, uproot that policy and narrative and not just go after random person who believes it because they didn't do anything but absorb the same policy I did. Right. 
Right. So, Jay, it's interesting, you know, and, and I see you and I ask, you know, I ask my guests because I see qualities of of men that I uh, I aspire to that I, I want to in, ingratiate or ingrain in me. And what I've seen and what I love about you before we move on is that your ability to walk into a room and not give a damn. And, and that's not damn is not the word that I want to say, <laughs> um, but it, but it it takes that opportunity where you say, you know what? I'm secure with my emotional intelligence. I know, right? I'm going to attack the idea, not the person. I understand that I have a revolution in this world and my revolution is my purpose. That's what I've seen in you is that you have made your revolution your purpose. And because your purpose is so strong, you walk into a room knowing that I am protecting my purpose every day and that I'm going to amplify and proliferate that purpose so I can have impact. The one thing that I, I want my listeners to understand is that, and we talked about this in the green room a little bit, is that you have a knack for taking a crisis, right? Taking taking a crisis and amplifying your work and amplifying your impact because the garden path came out, right? <laughs> the garden path, you're, you're, I don't know, I want to say it's your first book, but that came out right after Katrina. That that elevated you, right? That 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 gave you that revolutionaries. He became a king in New Orleans, right? Don't let, don't trip, right? Don't look his head getting up, <laughs> right? But I mean, don't trip, right? If you think about Andre Perry in New Orleans post Katrina, you were the voice. You were the voice, right? You were the you were the king. You were the king maker. You could bring the whole policy. You could bring the whole structure down. Now COVID hits. Know your price drops, right? <laughs> Know your price drops. And now you're seeing Dr. Andre Pear on MSNBC, CNN, ABC. He's been on Greek TV. He's been on everywhere, right? How do you, if there's a strategy, how do you take crisis, right, and elevate your brand and impact for the world? Well, I, I also don't see myself as outside of the world. These are issues that are impacting all of us. And you start from a very personal position. How is it affecting me? And thinking deeply about it. You know, I, I you know, I talk a lot about economics and education. So I, I look at the economic impacts mostly. But um, I also come from a place of I don't want, want my son. I don't want my wife. I don't want the people close to me to be negatively impacted by COVID, by ra um, racism. And so I carefully um, draft texts that show my position as a person and as a people. Mm. And I'm very just consistent with it. If something is, is big in the news, I don't, I don't just sit on the sideline. <laughs> like this conversation that we're having could be something I infuse mm. in, in something that's going on. So I don't waste any moment ever. Every is. conversation, every um, um, note I take can be used in the struggle to elevate Black people. Mm. And so there, there's no wasted information. Like um, right now, I'm actually thinking like, shoot, I need to get my podcast game up go. right now. Like <laughs> I need to... Uh, to 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 post on either Facebook, blah, 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 some of these conversations, because what I am losing is sort of in the space where I am now um, are intimate conversations with other men. Yeah. You'd be like black men, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, because you'd be surprised how few conversations in a in a policy arena you're actually having with other black men. It go. is it's yeah. scary. It's scary. So we need this. We need some of this because our perspective is needed in yeah. so many of these issues. Yeah. Dr. Perry and I were on uh our beloved WBOK back in back in back yeah. in New Orleans, you know, back in New Orleans. And that's where that's where I got my start. Got my start at WBOK with uh our 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 the lovely <laughs> the lovely Susan. What's Susan's last name, bro? She's gonna oh, kill me. Uh, <laughs> See, uh, 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 Susan, we love you. We love Susan. you. Uh, I, I miss you, Susan. And look, my forever producer, Rachel Graham, right? Uh, 
Shout out to her. That's right. Shout you out have, to Rachel. Yeah. But you just have this wonderful knack. And I love, I want to repeat that, right? That you don't waste a moment, that you don't waste a nugget. You hear something and you, I'm going to be able to infuse that. So revolutionaries, think about that. If you're trying to use what's going on in the world to raise your brand, to impact your communities, don't waste time. Right. That's right. Right. Don't waste time. Elevate yourself. Make sure that you are the voice right in those moments. And that's what my good friend, Dr. Dr. Dre has done in those moments. It was his voice in New Orleans. Right. And sometimes controversial, sometimes, yeah. often, oftentimes controversial, oftentimes. But he didn't waste a moment to say, you know what, I'm going to interject Dre into this conversation because you need to know what's going on from some for some voices that have not been heard dear brother oh you know can i say one more yeah, thing yeah. go ahead I, bro go ahead please i also learned we need to be clear what is impact impact is for me is actually changing policy changing um the narrative for a lot of people impact might be media hits twitter followers things like that and i found that a lot of people will chase social media and not really chase the impact that they're trying to get, you know? And it's like, wow. I mean, and when you are in those spaces and you see people, their motivation is really uh, driven by followers and yeah. self-interest. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, you know, I'm at a place now I'm 50. I'm at a place now where, you know, if, if I'm if I'm okay financially and I'm okay, I'm you know, I'm not really worried about myself anymore. I'm yeah. just not. It's yeah. about improving the conditions that take away life from our people. And um and so that's my purpose now. But um you'd be surprised how much um you gain. For not, we're taking off the the um, pressure of um, being adored. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, do the work, do the work. Things come because I mean, you know, this is a grind. Man. You know, this <laughs> is a straight up grind. Every and there's day. going to be long stretches when you're not acknowledged, you're not getting love, blah blah blah. And this is where you need to be secure. That's okay because you never know the impact. I mean, we're we're educators. How many students have come up to you? Yes, from man. Years from yes. years yeah. ago. Yes, yes. Just had it the other day. My look, my man Brett, Brett, uh, Brett, uh, Brett Witter um, from Great Neck Middle School. When I was when I was a, a young teacher, mentoring this white kid, right, in a group of young brothers, and invited him in. I haven't seen this kid since he left seventh grade in. 1996, he reached out to me on Facebook and said, you don't know the impact that you had on me, a white poor kid. And you invited me into this group of young brothers and it changed my life. Right. You never know. Dre, I was listening to this podcast and, you know, the, the Roll On podcast with Rich Roll and he had on Jay Shetty and Jay Shetty. Everybody, you can go Google who Jay Shetty is. Um, but one thing that said was really interesting that really correlates to what you were just saying is that. You know, if you put a post out and you you create the post because you know it's, you're trying to get a number of lights, you've lost. Yeah. If you're writing a book because you're thinking about the number of books you're going to sell, you've lost. You've lost because you're going to write a horrible book. You're going to write up a horrible post. It is about the impact, right? The garden path. Know your price. It is about impact. Like I said, this book is an autobiography, but it allows people to have a blueprint, Dre, on how to create policy that is going to change the lives of people of color, right? And you also get into, you get to see little Dre in there, exactly. <laughs> right, for a moment. But we need that, we need that blueprint, bro. Look, we're yeah. going to close. Look, go ahead, Dre, I know you want to go no, ahead. Um, the joy about writing um, Know Your Price was that I could be me. I mean, mm. I could truly be me. You know, I, I, I wasn't bound by any... Um, funder, I wasn't um, committed to any perspective per se. I wanted to write a book that revealed my research agenda and who I am as a person. And so you see, 
at the end of the day, I wrote a book that that pretty much asked to invest in black women um, and restore value in black communities and showing the different ways to do it. Yes. But that really it didn't come from me trying to to win over black women. It really just came from me doing the analysis and me recognizing the value that black women has has added to my life. And um but um you know, it was a joy writing because I could really just be me. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't it was easy. I mean, easy to write in a sense of uh, you know, the research was already done. I just needed to have my voice. Yes. Um, and to show people that that their personal narrative, their personal story, their lived experience can be the basis of any kind of text. Because we're trained, as you know this, uh, uh, Charles, that we're trained to be uh, outside observers, dispassionate observers. We're not trained to say, hey, that our lives are actually in this. And so once I said, you know, this is who I am, and this is going to be in the book. Now, it's a policy book um, because it really does talk about policy, but, you know, you're going to get the lived experiences of people in New Orleans, people yes. in Pittsburgh, people in Detroit. You're going to see how this research is played out in people's lives. And, and that's why um, I'm really proud of the book because I elevate people as much as, uh, as, as the ideas. And, the, and, and that's the crux. And, and, and that, is, that is definitely the crux. As you were talking, Dre, I kept thinking, Prince, Prince. I own my masters, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I own, look, and you know, when Prince wanted freedom, Right. And he got freedom. What that feels like to produce something when you're free, we're free, when you're free. We don't often get that, Dre. We don't we don't often get that freedom to be who we are, to see and encapsulate who we who we are as a people, who we are as individuals. And that's why I say when you see Dre, when you meet Dre, you gonna know this brother's done the work. He's going to walk into the room. You gonna know Dr. Dre, Dr. Andre Perry, Brookings Institute, New Orleans alum. Author of the Garden Path, author of Know Your Price, right? You're gonna know this, brother. Dre, I, look, I have one more question, but I, I think we just need to drop it right there, brother, because you have you you have given a master class, right? You, you have been given a master class. Shout out to our good friend Nasir Kadri at Zio Capital. You know, good. Oh, good, that's yeah, right. Nah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nas is a good brother. Definitely, you know, shout out to him and the great work he's doing in the venture capital space, funding and supporting entrepreneurs of color. Shout out to Camelback Ventures, my boy Aaron Walker, for all that we do at Camelback Ventures to do the same thing. Dre, man, you are doing and look, you're doing impossible work and making it look easy, dear brother. Let me tell you, you know, look, he's also one of the sharpest brothers that you will ever meet. <laughs> that brother's got style. He got style game for days. Shout out to the people in Wilkinsburg, my cousin at Hosanna House, Leon. I can't call him by his middle name, Haynes, <laughs> and all the great work that's happening. In oh, I didn't know that, that connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hosanna House in Wilkinsburg. Was... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Shout out to them. Look. We are gearing up for our 100th episode. We have already got our special guest. I'm not. I'm just gonna tease you. I'm gonna tease you. See him on Thursday nights. That's all I'm gonna say. That is all I'm gonna say. You see him on Thursday nights on ABC. That's a little bit more. That's a little bit more. Uh, as we come to our 100th episode of the What's Your Revolution show. Shout out to all the people who have supported this show and supported me over the last. Almost four years. January 17th will be our four year anniversary. Wow. Looking looking forward to that. Looking forward to our 100th episode. Dr. Dre, it has been a pleasure being with you. Being Look, go get Know Your Price. He is Andre Perry EDU on everything. Check him out. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Brookings Institute fellow Dr. Andre Perry. Thank you so much for gracing the What's Your Revolution show. Y'all take care. Happy Thanksgiving. And we will talk to you next time. Always be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? Peace, everyone. Take care. What's good, revolution? What's good, revolution?